Welcome to Globally Speaking, your program that explores everything and anything to do with language localization. Are you ready to dive into the most critical issues impacting global brands today? Globally Speaking is designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who's engaged in global communications. Your hosts for Globally Speaking are Renato Beninato and Michael Stevens. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. And now, here are Renato and Michael. Hi, this is Renato Beninato. This is Michael Stevens. Today we have a very special guest with us. Yeah, one of the more esteemed guests we've had. A writer for The Economist. Well, it's not every day that you get a famous journalist, an accomplished writer, and all in all, a very smart guy to talk to us. Yeah, but what does he know about language? Uh, That's the question. Lane, why don't you tell us about yourself, who you are, and just a a brief introduction, like two, three lines that you would write about you. Okay. My name is Robert Lane Green. People call me Lane, and I am an editor at The Economist in London, where I also write the biweekly language column, which is called Johnson. And I also cover the sort of language issues in the science section of the magazine from time to time and other parts of the paper. And I have been a keen language learner myself, like a lot of people in the translation industry over basically all of my adult life. So these issues are very close to my heart. And you have written a couple of books about language, but you are the antithesis to the classic joke that the definition of a person who only speaks one language is an American. You speak nine yeah. languages, or did you learn another one since we last met? No, I, I decided to slow down on adding new ones because I realized there's a lot of holes <laughs> plugged and in, in depth to be added uh, to the ones I've already, I've already worked on. So I'm going to try to build those up for a little while yet before I take on something new. Yes. What drew you into this? You know, it was just high school Spanish. It's just that simple. I, I had never had any international exposure, never had left the United States, a suburban family in the American South in Atlanta. It just was the one class that just kind of tickled me. And I don't know why, but I just seemed to do well in tests and quizzes without working terribly hard. And my mind just kind of reached out to it, just just kind of wanted that input and wanted to soak it up. It was like a, a puzzle, like some people like crosswords. I've never been a crossword guy for whatever it's worth, but I just loved trying to puzzle out how Spanish was put together, which is so different from how English was put together. And then I just added German in college, and then I added Portuguese, and I added French, and I just kept going. I couldn't stop. So I'm a strange one in that way. Yeah. Also, you have this passion for languages, and you're very much in the details with it. But I've even heard you self-describe, others have said this about you, when you write about language, you write from a meta view. You're writing about the bigger story. I like writing about the things people say and think about language. I don't know why I got so into that, but because I'm not a, I'm not a translator and industry professional in that sense, in your sense, and I'm not an academic linguist, so I'm not doing original research on, you know, changing vowels in the Great Lakes region or the theoretical syntax of the Chomsky School of Linguistics. I like language, fascinated by the, the individual questions like the changing use of whom over time, say, or the subjunctive. But I also like how I'm fascinated by how people think about it. And I guess what some people don't know about me is I have a political science degree and a master's. So I come to it from a sort of 
how do people organize themselves into groups and how do they make decisions as groups and individuals? And one of the ways you signal how you think about the world is the language group you choose to join. And not only, you know, the Portuguese speaking world or the English speaking world, but are you one of those English speakers who insists on whom and insists on saying it is I instead of it's me? What motivates those choices and really fascinates me. And so that was the that was the impetus behind my first book, You Are What You Speak. Why do people choose the sort of language tribes that they do? What's behind that? Yeah, you, you seem to also have a very generous perspective when you come to language. You use one description that language is like a dance. Yeah, it's, it, it really is a two-person thing. And to be, to be sort of ornery and say you're doing it wrong is a bit like telling your dance partner, knock that off. Well, you're not going to get a lot of dates and names on your dance card if you do that over and over again. So it's just no fun. And, it, and because I think language is so interesting. It's so fascinating. I can talk about it all day. I just, the, just a sort of red in the face kind of attitude towards it doesn't do anything for me. Well, and you work for The Economist, one of the most respected publications in the world, one of the that is considered most unbiased and fact-based. And I'm not talking about the blog only, but how is language relevant inside The Economist? Because you report on issues from all over the world. You have publications in China, in different languages also. How does that permeate the day-to-day activities at The Economist? I think we have on the order of about 16 bureaus around the world at this point, maybe give or take one or two. And a few of them are in the U.S., but the rest of them are outside the English-speaking world primarily. There's, um, there's Brazil, Mexico, Singapore, several in China, several in India, you know, several in Europe, and so on. And most of those correspondents are expected to learn the language of the country they're covering as, as, to the extent that they can. Now, I say that, but some of those journalists will be doing almost all of their reporting in the country's language. If you're in France and you're a reporter, you're really expected to speak French with your sources. Maybe the occasional show-off you banker in France will, will insist on showing you his fluent English, but most work from most of our correspondents will be in the language of the country. And it's quite hard to get your language, whatever it be, fluent enough, fast enough to, to carry on a lively kind of sometimes confrontational discussion with someone when you're on the back foot using a second language, but people are expected to try it. In the cases of some of the hard languages, and I'm thinking of China here particularly, not all of our writers will be doing all of their work in Chinese. They'll either bring a translator, they'll have uh, English versions of documents that they use for their research, and so forth. So not every one of our journalists gets totally fluent, because it can take a very, very long time to get as far as you need to be in a Chinese, a Japanese, an Arabic, and some of the others. But you have some strong opinions about uh, how publications use or don't use translators. Yeah, it's interesting. While the spoken language is seen as important, you quite definitely expect it to be able to sit down and have a conversation with someone. So you either learn the language or you might take a fixer who acts as an interpreter in the spoken realm. It's really not that common to seek out and really immerse yourself in documents and written matter in the foreign language. And that's always struck me as kind of odd. It's either you find English translations that are done sort of by the institution producing the, the original or you just call an expert and ask them to summarize it for you. But it does not seem to be an instinct of most journalists to get written material translated when they need it. Hmm. It's something that I've been observing for, for many years. I have a sense that, especially for breaking news, they use young journalists and they get AP or Reuters news flashes and they do a rough translation of what's going on. And very often you have very, very wrong translations in those first news that are coming out. Yeah. There's wrong translation that 
that is a result of that. What are some of the other impacts of this lack of ability to research in native language from your perspective? Well, I try to tell I try to tell monolingual English speakers just to do this brief thought experiment, which is imagine you're a French person in America and you can't speak English. You can't talk to your cab driver, you can't talk to the man on the street, and you can't read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post. How successfully do you think you could? But you do have a very friendly French-English interpreter who walks around and, and at your request hmm. with a time delay and the loss of nuance at all and all that's involved. You do have a very nice interpreter who helps you out every time you ask him to. Do you think that you would be able to cover the United States in all of its in all of its complexity? And the answer is suddenly and obviously no, right? So if you're in a Brazil, you really want to be knowing not just kind of the basics of what's happening, but you want to know the meta conversation about what's happening. You know, you want to say, these are how the papers are covering the latest, well, this being Brazil, the latest scandal, the latest impeachment, the latest, uh, the latest vote. <laughs> the latest part of the Olympic thing that's not yeah, yeah. done. <laughs> so you want to know what Sao Paulo and the Globe were saying, because it gives you a sense of where, where the, the goalposts are in the country. So you really want to be able to pick up and read a paper. But most people in, in some of those countries, we do that. Like I said, our, our man in Sao Paulo is quite good in Portuguese by now. But in other countries, we don't expect it as a minimum. So you wrote an article that we want to highlight for folks for Taos, the Taos Review, covering this exactly, right? How rarely journalism is translated. Mm-hmm. And in that article, I said, well, we can we can go ahead and concede that not every journalist is going to know every language they need to know. Some people are working in London and cover a sectoral issue like healthcare or something like that in the environment, and they can't know all the countries of the world's languages. So, But it will happen sometimes that a piece of copy will come your way that is not in English. Now, as it happens, say you're covering the environment, most of the stuff you need will be in English. The scientific bodies, the NGOs produce a lot of their primary stuff in English. But we can just posit, I think, that sometimes it won't be. And it just, most of the reporters I know, their instinct would be to say, is there an official English translation of this? Or just skip it and say, it obviously doesn't matter. If it wasn't done in English, I'll find something that was. But it does not seem to be their instinct to turn to the translation industry. Yeah. yeah, and that's the interesting part, because you tend to be, there is a lot of bias in reporting according to the language. So I remember clearly during the Iraq war, I was listening to the news in the United States, and I was reading the news in other countries online, and, and they were completely different. And I kept talking to my wife, and she wouldn't understand what, what was the difference. And then, so I subscribed to the French television, and the perspective from outside the United States was completely different. And she was shocked at how a French show could have people from 20 countries, including Arabs, countries and Israel and the United States, in a show that lasted three hours without advertising to talk about the real issues. And these are things that don't happen here in the United States. So there is this element of bias also that is compounded by the fact that the language in which the information is reported conveys some kind of worldview. Yeah. Yeah. How does budget influence the instincts of journalists with this? Like you say they just skip the article and don't consider translation. Is that because there's only so much that they're getting paid for each article and to hire a translator would diminish what they make on it? 
Well, if you're a freelancer, that would be your calculation, depending on your arrangement with the publication. I'm, I'm a staffer and I always have been, so it's harder for me to say how freelancers make their decisions. But sometimes, depending on your, your contract, you could say that any expenses are paid by the commissioning publication anyway. So your fee is what your fee is, and then your travel and translation and all those things are, are on top. In the case of staff, I mean, think about this. We, we fly people around the world all the time. We're buying $1,000 plane tickets to send people across the Atlantic and the Pacific on a regular basis. And we put them in hotels in New York's and London's that cost hundreds of dollars a night. And we pay expenses for all kinds of journalism. In this context, a translation of brief pieces that might, might be useful wouldn't be an unthinkable crazy charge. I mean, we have a catered lunch on Wednesdays. We have people take cabs home if they work past a certain hour at night. We pay for lots of things that make our lives and our journalism better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything is constrained by budgets right now. It's just, this is just in the nature of budgeting. Everything that's an expense is not part of the profit pool. But it just doesn't seem to have become habit to consider this a worthwhile expense. Yeah. That may be a harder thing to change than just a budget line. Yeah. (laughs) It's a, it's a cultural change. It's changing habits. Yeah. And that's a challenge for the industry because I think that the message that you share with us is essentially that there is a lack of awareness of the, ability and the availability of good quality translation. What's the role of machine translation in this process? How is Google Translate a friend or a foe for a journalist? Yeah, Google Translate has obviously got lots of pitfalls. It, it will give you a rough gist, but sometimes the gist can be 180 degrees wrong by Google Translate mistranslating or not catching you know, a polarity item like not or never or always or isn't or something like that that switches the meaning of the sentence completely. That can happen. And then just there are, of course, the many things that just get you know, turned into a hash by Google Translate. I have to say, I think Google Translate can be amazing sometimes, but it produces errors that can vary from trivial to very serious in almost every translation it does. So you have to use it with great caution. And that means having a sort of metalinguistic knowledge about what Google Translate is, what it can do, recognizing the limits of your own ability to judge how good a job Google Translate has done. If you don't know the source language and you're translating into English and you know absolutely nothing of the source language, then you're in trouble because you will, even if, if you see some grammatical English coming out the output side, you have no idea if that was good. All you can see is that it seems to be grammatical English. Now, if what comes out is a hash, of course, you can say, well, that's garbled and I can't use that. But if it seems to be grammatical, then you might just say, hey, nifty, that's perfect, not knowing if Google Translate hasn't missed something quite crucial. And I've seen it do that. Well, I have a saying that translation is only news when it's bad. That's uh, right. It's like the referee, you know, <laughs> it's a referee in a soccer match. Yeah. Exactly. A, a hashtag that I use every once in a while, because that's the only time that you see translation in the news. Is there a way, Lane, that you think we could make the journalistic environment more aware of language issues in reporting? Well, language issues, I think journalists are quite taken with language. They like the subject. They write about trends in English language eagerly. They, you know, those who write about foreign languages like to take their hand at, take a chance to write about trends in French and Portuguese or whatever country they're in. But the thing is that because there are very few, close to zero journalists in the world, I'm one of the very few who actually write about language regularly, the analysis can be very superficial, very kind of summer trend piece rather than the kind of fine-grained feel you get from working with an issue over the course of years. I mean, we don't expect that an environmental correspondent can just wade into the climate change debate, dash off a piece in three days after five interviews, and nail it, right? But that's how we very often, too often, treat language, uh, because 
I think the idea is if it's physics, we know that we're not physicists, so we don't try to do that. But because we can use language, we think that we know almost all that we need to know about describing language, including its interior workings. And that's really the stuff of linguistics, which is in it somewhere between a social science and a hard science, depending on the subfield. And, and it really does require long-term knowledge, pay, paying attention to the field over time, getting to know sources, getting to know the debates, getting to know their, their contours. And we just don't pay very many journalists out there in the world to do that. We are aware of your time constraint. Is there anything that you expected us to ask you that we forgot to ask that you'd like to message what? that you'd like to cover? I take it sort of a part two of your of your last question to be how can the profile of the translation industry be raised among journalists? I mean, most journalists I know will not be able to name a single translation company, even a very big one. Yeah. And that is two reasons, I think. I think that one is it's a quintessential B2B business. So it doesn't have consumer-facing products like Apple. It has behind the scenes like a Deloitte or a, or a KPMG. It's a professional service in that, in that way. Now, I mentioned Deloitte and KPMG. Everybody knows they're big four accounting audit firms. There's not a big four translation firms. It's an extremely fragmented industry a lot more like the legal industry, where even the very biggest firms are hardly uh, household names. And so without famous companies and without shiny products, journalists aren't drawn to it as a business story. And that's one of the same reasons why they just don't think about the industry generally. And so that is part of the reason why they don't think about engaging pro translators to do their own work when writing about some other issue. And finally, I'm used in that column that I wrote for the Taos Review and I hate this cliche, but I'm forced to use it anyway in this case. Nobody's really come up with the Uber of translation. Now, everybody wants to be the Uber of everything. There's lots of even satires about the Uber being a pitch deck for the Uber of pony rides and things like that. So, uh, everybody, everybody wants to be the Uber of everything. I'm looking forward to this cliche dying, and it may, it may do one day soon. But somebody needs to come up with an elegant and quick way to link translators and people who need small translation jobs. When I was in Brazil to talk to the Brazilian Translators and Interpreters Association last year, I met a young guy who was trying to kind of build exactly this. And it was going to put people who needed a job done together with kind of a bidding system uh, for getting it done, a reverse auction kind of system. Unfortunately, it didn't take off. He tried to fund it through the Brazilian version of Kickstarter, and I just don't think he got there. So... This has yet to be done right, but if someone did build a system to make this quick, fun, and painless, then I think individual freelance translators could pick up a lot of work depending on their availability. It's the kind of thing that Uber drivers love. When they need more money, they, they work more, exactly. and when they don't, they don't. Yeah. And those of us who needed it could summon it quickly. Maybe that app could, if it were a bigger job, you needed 10,000 words, you needed it tomorrow, it could be broken up through something like, you know, the mechanical Turk that Amazon has done to, to, to break apart smaller jobs or to have people work away at bits of it. Duolingo has crowdsourced translation as part of its kind of odd business model. Apparently, I'm, I heard that they stopped. with. Yeah, they've moved away from it. They're now doing the certification tests is their primary business. Interesting. That's good to know. You've broken some news to me. I'll go take some tests and see what I can certify for. Yeah. <laughs> they, but yeah. it is interesting, this, this long tail area is a place that people are starting to think about more and more yeah. because we now have the technology to connect it. And we used to move big things very well in localization. And all of a sudden, everyone's looking at the sand that's still on the beach and we're going, oh, there's a lot of sand, a lot yeah. more sand than boulders. And how can you yeah. efficiently address this? 
Yeah, yeah. And that is not easy to do. But I mean, you know, the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world have found a lot of gold in the long tail. So uh, it's got to actually have a, a show planned on the sharing economy in the translation business. And we're going to cover that topic in a future episode. Maybe yeah. we will invite you again to comment on that. Well, I would, I would love to come, as a, as a, whether as a guest or as, a, as just a listener. I look, I look forward to it. Awesome. Well, I think we did good. This podcast was produced by Burns360. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, brought to you by Moravia. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So until next time, please visit online at www.globallyspeakingradio.com.